Welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, clinician and founder of the Autoimmune Revolution. After watching my mom suffer with autoimmune disease, I have made it my mission and purpose to help people like you. Unlock the door to better results, regain control of your body, and feel like yourself again. I want you to become an autoimmune alchemist and get your life back. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in. May you be filled today with joy, abundance, and loving kindness. Peace and love. Hey everyone, welcome to Autoimmune Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Justin Janoska, and Happy New Year to you. I think this is the first episode I've done all year. <laughs> so I uh, hope you had a great holiday season. I did. I had some downtime and got to see family and friends, and I drove across America. If you've been following me on, on Instagram, you probably could see that I was all over the place. So it's great to be back here in Dallas. So I'm pleased to be here with you. And if you're new to the show, I like to begin with reading a quote that I post on my Instagram stories every day. And if you don't follow me, please do at Justin Janoska. And today I wrote, our human life is the endless round of creation of self and suffering. Until we find a way to break the chain with mindfulness and wisdom. Very simple, pretty straightforward, I think, but that is the practice for us, including myself, as we learn how to bring mindfulness and stillness and new wisdom that can come from that. And that affects how we show up in the world, how we evolve into our next best self and be the best version of ourselves so we can be there for others and do our job on this planet, I think. That's what it's all about. So today we're going to get into a very uh, comprehensive discussion, I think, on thyroid health because January is, in fact, Thyroid Awareness Month. And before I recorded this, I was thinking about all the things I want to touch on because there's so much to discuss when it comes to thyroid health. And if you know my work, I specialize in Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, and in autoimmune disease in general, but mostly thyroid disease, including some graves and hypothyroidism, which really could be autoimmune or not. But I thought today I would discuss and or rather touch on various aspects of thyroid health. So we're going to talk about subclinical hypothyroidism, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, some hyperthyroidism and Graves, euthyroid 6 syndrome. I'm going to go through medications, labs, and thyroid issues as it pertains to pregnancy and postpartum thyroiditis. So there is a chock full of stuff here that we're going to get into. And it might be a little bit longer than my usual episodes, but this is a real important topic for me. And I really believe that you'll gain a lot of value out of this. So let's begin with subclinical hypothyroidism. Now, this is a state of thyroid health where you're not in full-blown hypothyroidism, obviously. It's subclinical. It's the stage right before it where essentially it can be categorized as two different scenarios. So you have what is known as grade one where your TSH levels are somewhere between four. 0.5 and 9.9 milliunits per liter with a normal free T4. And that's the pattern that we see is a high TSH, but a normal 
free T4. But there is grade two, which is basically saying TSH is equal or greater than 10 milliunits per liter alongside a free normal T4. 90% roughly of people with subclinical hypothyroidism have TSH levels that are lower than 10. So it's actually quite rare to see it above 10. And, and me personally, I look at a lot of labs. I've looked at many labs over the years, and I rarely see it above 10, actually. And this is including people with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. But one thing I do want to make clear, though, is that a TSH that's high is not good. In fact, that's a real issue uh, for general health purposes. So you don't want to have a rising high TSH because that means your thyroid is very much compromised and that can have a lot of downstream negative effects. One thing I tell my clients a lot is that a rising TSH is not good. If you have a TSH of say 15 and it's static and it stays that way for some period of time, that's a lot better than having a TSH that goes from 10 to 14 to 15 to 19 to 25 and higher and higher. So if it goes higher and higher, that means there's a lot of, there's, there's something going on and we have to quickly fix it. And medication obviously is a go-to and needed for most people um, that doctors are going to do for you. And we should be open to that because if we're not, we're going to be, we're not going to be in our best health. And that's really critical to, to acknowledge because a lot, there are some people and maybe you're one of them who are kind of anti-pharma and don't want to take medications. And I hear you, but when it comes to thyroid health, especially if you're dealing with a high TSH and hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, thyroid medication is generally needed. And you got to listen to the endocrinologist who is an expert in this. But if we're going to talk about things outside of medication and what else to do for your health, then that's a different story. But when it comes to medications, they are the experts and they are going to do what is best. So you really want to uh, consider it and, and listen to what they have to say. It, it does really matter. Okay, so there are a couple things I actually want to point out with subclinical hypothyroidism. And the reason being is that this can kind of get shoved under the rug or overlooked because we think, well, my TSH is kind of high at a range, but I'm not really feeling um, any symptoms yet maybe, okay? Because sometimes people can have symptoms and these are the uh, kind of the signs. It's like a, a canary in the coal mine that things are going to potentially go sideways if we don't resolve this. So with TSH levels in the upper normal range, this can lead to some whole body systemic issues. And this is the issue with hypothyroidism as a whole. Okay, it just comes back to the severity and the intensity of these symptoms. One thing that we know is that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is something that could be that people can be at risk for with low thyroid status. So there are a couple things that you should be aware of when it comes to low thyroid status. And one thing I'll say is that subclinical hypothyroidism is most often caused by Hashimoto's and in people with circulating TPO antibodies, that is thyroid peroxidase antibodies, there is a greater risk for the progression from subclinical hypothyroidism to overt hypothyroidism. Okay. Now, there are some things to be aware of that 
can happen in the body that I want to list out for you. And these would be considered adverse effects of subclinical hypothyroidism. And really, it could also be found in people with just overt hypothyroidism. But the point of this is to observe this within yourself and see that low thyroid status affects every organ and cell in the body. So for instance, research points out that low thyroid status is associated with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, dyslipidemia, that is altered lipid panel, uh, lipid biomarkers such as cholesterol, LDL, triglycerides. It's also implied in sort of cognitive dysfunction and can maybe lead to depression or some brain fog perhaps or um, brain-based fatigue, issues around thinking and remembering and fatigue with driving. And it's associated with bone health issues, fracture, and thyroid cancer potentially. Again, this is why TSH level has to be monitored because elevated TSH levels is associated with a high risk of thyroid cancer. And of course, infertility, miscarriages, pregnancy complications, which we'll talk about at the end of the show, and preterm delivery, things like that. Okay, so it is a pretty big deal. Now, there are other things too that I want to add to this that can happen with hypothyroidism. Okay, so that's what subclinical hypothyroidism looks like or can look like. Now, let's transition into this, the discussion around hypothyroidism. And this is essentially a state where TSH is high and T4 is low. Now, some people can have a normal-ish TSH, but have a low free T4, and that would still probably qualify as hypothyroidism, according to the doctor, though. You'll have to find out. Now, severe hypothyroidism is generally a pattern where you see a really high TSH, like I said earlier, with a low free T4 and sometimes a low free T3. There are a lot of symptoms associated with this, and if you have hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, you probably already know what this is like. But just to be very brief and quick, we can see issues with hair loss and hypothyroidism. And I'm going to explain actually to you briefly why these symptoms happen, because it is a whole body issue, like I said. So thyroid hormone impacts metabolic rate, it impacts hair follicles and the growth of hair follicle metabolism, and poor blood flow is a real issue in many women I see with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. So because there's poor blood flow due to insufficient thyroid hormone, there is lack of circulation to the hair follicle, and that's this is where we can run into issues around hair loss. If you feel cold in the extremities, your scalp, your hands, your feet, right, that's all part of that. And this is why people can also deal with poor nail quality and have weak, soft, white nail beds or brittle nails, and people can be prone to fungal nail infections. Hypothyroidism also affects protein metabolism and the ability to build muscle. It also impacts gut health and maintaining the gut wall. You need thyroid hormone to have a strong, robust gut wall, and we know that leaky gut or intestinal permeability issues are pretty common. So. This is why we have to do a lot of work sometimes to support that in the face of low thyroid status. And because of that, malabsorption issues are high a lot of times, so people can't 
sufficiently absorb and digest and assimilate their nutrients. Weight gain, as we know, is very common, and many women, many people have a hard time losing weight. Uh, they also gain weight a lot of times because of the fact that metabolism is slowing down. So thyroid hormones control metabolic rate. They affect insulin signaling. They, you know, thyroid hormone affects these specific enzymes like hormone-sensitive lipase, which is an enzyme that breaks fat into free fatty acids so that it can be used for energy, okay? And this is one of the reasons why people have a hard time losing weight. So it doesn't mean it's not working. It's just that there's low functionality. Thyroid hormones greatly influence skin health and cell regeneration of the skin. So this is why a lot of people with Hashimoto's I see deal with issues like eczema or psoriasis, which is another autoimmune disease, uh, rosacea, or if nothing else, dry skin, okay? And some people will report having joint pain or swelling, edemia, water retention, okay? Again, thyroid hormone deficiency is causing this. And then lastly, we know that Speaking of a swelling and edema, this is a real common complaint I hear a lot. And people think they've gained weight. And maybe, but a lot of it is also due to water because of the fact that thyroid hormone activity is associated with increased levels of a hormone called antidiuretic hormone, which is a hormone that comes out of the hypothalamus in the brain. And it serves to control blood pressure. And it does this by reducing the amount of water that's passed out in the urine and corrals it, collects it back into the kidneys. So when blood vessels constrict, blood pressure can increase as well. Now, speaking of water retention and swelling, this is a real common complaint that I hear a lot from clients and women that I speak to. And... We already know that thyroid issues can translate into weight gain, and that could be obviously going on, but we also have to remember that a lot of the weight that we're gaining is not really all fat. In fact, most of it is probably water because of things like this. There is a hormone called antidiuretic hormone that comes out of the hypothalamus, and low thyroid activity is associated with increased levels of this hormone, which does what? It serves to control blood pressure, by reducing the amount of water passed out through the kidneys, through the urine. So you end up retaining a lot of water. And there are other hormones too that are involved, but this is the main thing. And so this is going on because of your thyroid status. This might really be due to hormonal changes like this. And this can translate into blood pressure issues too for some people, which I sometimes see. So if you're retaining a lot of water and sodium and water follows sodium, then this is one of the reasons why people can have blood pressure challenges. So the outcome here is puffiness, bloating, and swelling, and these really uncomfortable symptoms. Now, just to be clear, hypothyroidism can happen independent of autoimmune disease. It is a state that people can get into just by virtue of uh, secondary, there can be secondary hypothyroidism or things basically associated with uh, disturbances in the brain with the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland and it may not be autoimmune related at all okay stress from life can actually drive hypothyroidism you see this in people with who chronically diet or exercise actually and 
I will tell you as we move into the discussion here around Hashimoto's thyroiditis is that most people actually are not, that I see, are not dealing with hypothyroidism. Maybe they once were in that state, technically speaking, with a high TSH and low T4 or some abnormal patterns in their thyroid labs, but hypothyroidism is not always the case. It's not always present in Hashimoto's. Okay, so, but don't let that uh, fool you or, or mislead you into thinking that you don't have a thyroid issue, right? It's just, categorically speaking, it's different. There's an autoimmune issue going on that can catapult you into a low thyroid state and push you into hypothyroidism. And this can happen in waves. Like there are moments where people have this going on and they have dips in their thyroid hormone and a high TSH because they had a flare-up. And then maybe next month they don't. So it there's an ebb and flow to this, and it's fluctuating a lot of times, which is really why it's confusing and kind of annoying, honestly. So I, I totally can see why that would be very frustrating if you're going through that. Now, Hashimoto's. Okay, there's a lot to this, but there's a couple of main things I want to point out. As I just alluded to a minute ago, Hashimoto's can look like a couple things. For one, it can look like euthyroidism, which is basically what I said, where the thyroid tissue is in good standing for the most part. There are There is no more destruction to the thyrocytes, the cells that are making thyroid hormone. So you don't have hypothyroidism. There is the state of hypothyroidism, of course, when thyroid hormone production is down and the thyroid gland can't meet the demand. And then there is a state where this can get really confusing and it's called thyrotoxicosis. And this is when people have episodes where they have symptoms of hyperthyroidism. They have an increased heart rate, they have sweating, they have night sweats, they have anxiety, things like that. And it's very confusing because then people go, wait, do I have Graves now? And really a lot of times they don't, especially if you already have a history or a diagnosis of Hashimoto's. What's happening is thyroid hormone is being secreted or released from the destroyed follicles. And that's because of a flare-up or an immune attack that came all of a sudden. So you have a brief transient moment of high T4 in the blood. And you have transient hyperthyroidism, but you don't have graves. And you really don't have hyperthyroidism either. It's just a sign that there's a problem. And what I tell people is that if that's happening over and over again throughout the year, it means that the autoimmune disease is not getting better. It's like, it's really just getting worse. So that's not a good thing. Now this can happen with medication changes too. If you're increasing the dosage uh, because your doctor had to do that or you change medication, like that can, be, that can happen too. So be aware of that connection. But a lot of times this is because of a flare up. Now I want to give you some facts to know about Hashimoto's that I think will really surprise you because there's a lot of confusion still out there. And one of them being that antibodies do not correlate with improvements in symptoms. Okay, this is one of the biggest misconceptions. People think that if their antibodies are getting lower, that they're going to have improvements in their health and symptoms, or their Hashimoto's goes away. And that's not true at all. Yes, you want antibodies to come down. Because if, they, if TPO was at, say, 1,200, and it gets down to 700, that's a good thing. And yes, there generally will be improvements in symptoms a lot of times, but... If you're going from 700 to 400 or 
300 to 200, is there going to be a change? Are you going to be better? Maybe not. And there are many times where I've seen clients who have a relatively high TPL, like of say maybe 600, and they have no symptoms. Okay, they're in remission. And I've seen the opposite be true where people have a TPL level of say maybe 150 and they have raging symptoms. So it can be very misleading. And this is because of the fact that antibodies are not the main players in autoimmune disease. They are involved, but they are not responsible for the condition. They're not responsible for the destruction. Right? They're indicators of oxidative stress, really. But they're not contributing to the thyroid damage. That is attributed to other immune cells like macrophages and T cells, which you're not testing for, but they are the ones doing the damage. Antibodies are just kind of scouting the territory and saying, hey, there's a target. Let's hit that. That's what they do. Okay. So this is why, and research has actually pointed out that there's really no strong connection between TPO levels and severity of disease. So don't get attached to antibodies. That's the take-home message there. Now, medications like levothyroxine or synthetic T4 can decrease TPO antibodies, maybe. But a lot of times, TPO levels don't change or neither do symptoms. They might in the beginning, but then a lot of times people stay, uh, they kind of flatline in a sense where they don't see any improvements, they stagnate or things get worse. So again, you still need it for the sake of TSH, like I said before, but medications are not really doing much. They're just kind of there to help keep the thyroid alive and doing helping it function better. So medications might decrease antibodies. Selenium is a very popular supplement that's been documented to decrease antibodies. And that uh, does happen, but some people don't see those benefits. And again, even if that does happen, doesn't mean you're going to find improvement in symptoms. Okay, this is again why I get away from these sort of a plus B equals C sort of interventions where we think we give this one intervention, the supplement, this fancy new thing, and that's going to translate into better results and improvements. It doesn't happen that way. And we have to get away from this very oversimplified approach because this is very complicated and you can't really rely on one little thing like that. Thyroglobulin antibodies are the other biomarker that can be tested for. That's TG, TPO, thyroid peroxidase is the first one I mentioned. Now, this is an antibody I would observe and test for to make a decision around how Hashimoto's is looking. But we actually know now from research that it is not a reliable antibody. It's actually present in many healthy people. We see it in people with Graves. We see it in people with um, tw 10 to 20% of, of healthy adults have a positive thyroglobulin antibody. So it's very misleading. And this is why I don't really look at that and you don't want to put your your faith into that either. TPO antibodies and ultrasound are the most reliable ways to diagnose Hashimoto's. Now one thing I'll say about nodules because a lot of people talk about this and they're told they have nodules, they, they're told they have to get them removed or that it's a problem and the reality is that it's not really the case. Uh, ultrasound is the way you want to screen for this usually, right? But around maybe 60% of people with thyroid disease have thyroid nodules and they have no dysfunction. They're not toxic, they're not malignant, but 5% of people with nodules will have malignant 
nodules. And that's something that doctors that you work with will have to kind of tease out and figure out if that's serious enough to remove. But for your own peace of mind, understand that the, the there's a very low chance that your nodules are malignant and cancerous. Hey, sorry to break into the show, but because it is Thyroid Awareness Month and the start to a new year, I want to tell you something very special that I'm doing right now. So right now, through the end of January, I am offering one free month of the program Thyroid Revive for all of my new clients. We've signed on four new clients this month already. I'm really psyched. Some people are really taking action and they want to get their disease under control. And I hope that's you too. So if you're interested in learning more about this, all you have to do is schedule a discovery call with me and we can see if Thyroid Revive is a great fit for you. And if you sign up, I'll give you one free month. And you know what? I'll even give you free access to my trauma course, Illuminating Darkness. If you want to schedule a call with me, all you have to do is see the link in the show notes. When you schedule the call, we will have a discussion, see where we are, see if we're a good match. And if you feel good about it, then we'll get you started right away. I really want you to be healthy and resilient this year because you deserve it. Thrive in Thyroid Revive. How does that sound? <laughs> okay. Once again, see the link in the show notes to schedule your free call with me. And I really look forward to speaking with you. Okay, now back to the show. Okay, now moving into hyperthyroidism and Graves' disease. So just to be clear, Graves' disease is a autoimmune disease that is basically the opposite of Hashimoto's, where there is overproduction and overstimulation of the thyroid gland. And it's caused by stimulation of the TSH receptor by TSH receptor antibody. These antibodies target the receptor and exert this stimulating effect where they are making more T4 and T3. And in the majority of cases, you see this go on to a place where it becomes uh, a state of hyperfunction of the thyroid gland. And this creates all the symptoms like we can see, like bowel motility increases, sweating, trembling, anxiety, tachycardia, increased heart rate, insomnia maybe, heart palpitations, things of that nature. It's important to make this distinction because if that's chronic and going on for a long time, then and you have evidence of graves, which I'll talk about in a second, then it's graves. But if it's happening... For like a day, it's probably not because you're having a flare-up or a state of thyrotoxicosis, like I said before. So we understand that TPO is the most sensitive biomarker for diagnosing autoimmune thyroiditis or autoimmune thyroid disease. And people with Graves' disease will have a positive TPO and thyroglobulin antibody, actually. They, research actually shows that somewhere between maybe 60 to 80% of patients will have a positive TPO, uh, maybe even upwards of 95%. So we can see TPO antibodies present in Graves and Hashimoto's. The difference maker to determine if you have Graves or Hashimoto's before you have symptoms, that is even, this is why we need to do this, is TSH receptor antibody or TSI, thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin. So TSH receptor antibodies are not found in healthy individuals. So that indicates autoimmune disease if you have it. 
It's also actually found in maybe 10% of people with Hashimoto's, but the, give, the difference in the ability to distinguish what you have is based around the symptoms at that point. So if you have Hashimoto's and you have a positive TSH receptor antibody, well, you have symptoms of hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's, then it's that, right? I think it's pretty straightforward. And generally with Graves, TSH will be under one and free T3 and free T4 will be elevated. Okay, now we're gonna get into euthyroid six syndrome or what's known as non-thyroidal illness syndrome. This might be the one thing you haven't heard of before or much at all. It's something that I talk more and more about because I see it actually clinically with clients and how they don't fall into the Hashimoto's hypothyroidism bucket per se, but they have enough stress and nothing's going on to cause thyroid issues or rather symptoms of thyroid issues, but they don't actually display a thyroid problem. So it's a little confusing. And really what is happening is that people are showing a pattern of normal TSH, but they have a low free T3, low total T3. And I should, I should mention a normal T4 too. So they have a normal TSH, normal T4, but low T3. And oftentimes a high reverse T3, which is a marker of stress. Because what's happening is T4 is going, instead of T3 converted into T3, it's being converted into reverse T3, which is inactive. And then T3 can go into T2, but that's not that important right now. So the point being that there is some stress that's going on that's affecting what's happening at the cellular level. So really what's going on is you're dealing with a lot of stress that is affecting the thyroid in the signaling to a degree where you're dealing with a low T3 and sometimes this can move into a low T4 and also a low TSH. It's there's many different combinations of patterns. It's why it's confusing because it doesn't look like it's one particular way all the time. Chronic inflammation, severe infection, all these things can sometimes cause this effect where you see TSH actually low and it's really just the output and the signaling from the brain to the thyroid gland isn't, isn't there and that's thereby causing low T3 and T4. What's usually happening is there's stress, there's trauma, there's a lot of other things going on that isn't autoimmune related, that is causing high abnormal cortisol patterns, a high reverse T3, like we said, is there, and their body is under a torrent of stress. This can correlate strongly with a low heart rate variability, which is a really good indicator of how much stress your body is under. So really what I'm saying here is that symptoms and how you feel have to be in the spotlight because it's not always going to reflect in your thyroid labs. This is why a lot of people feel like crap all the time and maybe you've, you've probably experienced this and your doctor says you're normal and you're fine, you're healthy, you're the epitome of health, whatever. And you're like, well, I feel like this, so am I? And it's confusing because paper on paper it says you're fine but you don't feel that way because there's many, because labs are not perfect. And this is why we have to listen to our intuition and the wisdom of the body. You might see a, no, a normal TSH. You might see a normal T4. You might see even a low, T, uh, low T3. But you're told it's not an issue, but you feel awful. And so I would just say and urge you to consider your lifestyle and the stress and emotionally, physically, 
and your environment and these sort of things. If, because if there's a lot going on, you're really honest about your about it. That probably is a giveaway, and you want a second opinion around this. But definitely consider what I'm saying because if you don't, you're gonna have to wait for the labs to get really bad in order in order for a doctor to do something about it. Okay, so a quick word around thyroid medications. Like I said earlier, some people need it. A lot of people need it, at least temporarily. But with Hashimoto's and autoimmune disease, generally it's indefinite. Um, people really need to get uh, on it in order for, to have some sort of maintenance and uh, equilibrium. Okay. Now, there's a lot of different medications out there, different brand names. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I wanted to highlight some of the key things to remember when it comes to thyroid medication. So Synthroid is the main player these days. Synthroid, uh, the brand name, and levothyroxine, the generic thyroid hormone, and they supply T4 only. Chances are you've had that. Most people are on that. And that's because insurance covers it, okay? But the reality is that not many people, a lot of people don't respond well to it because of fillers, excipients in them, or because they need T3. And so maybe sometimes your doctor will give you synthetic T3, like leothyronine. And if you're really lucky, you get Leotrex, which is a fixed ratio of T4 and T3. So you get both. And honestly, that's usually what people need if they have something like Hashimoto's. Now, if you have regular hypothyroidism, then maybe T4 is enough, and you can, you can convert that to T3. But when autoimmune issues are at play here, it becomes much more difficult to convert T4 to T3, and this is why people don't feel better with thyroid medication. And you can still, quite frankly, have issues and challenges and not feel much better, even if you're on T4 and T3. So it's it's unfortunate, but this is just the reality of it. It's not uh, medications are not the thing that's going to save you, but they're necessary. So bioidentical hormone or desiccated is also an option for some people that's very hard to get. And you really need an integrated physician or a doctor. I had to get my mom to see someone who could prescribe those things and was open to that. They're harder to get because uh, traditional endocrinologists don't have, believe in that stuff. They're kind of against it maybe or they're stuck with synthetics like Synthroid. And they're biased for that. Bioidentical is not covered by insurance, okay? And some people have also uh, insensitivities to T3 and they can't handle it, maybe it's too much. Um, it depends, the body, it's really confusing. We don't always know why people respond better to synthetic versus bioidentical. And some people actually respond better to, to synthetic or bioidentical more than the other. So it can look like a lot of different ways. And people ask me, which one's better? I'm like, I don't know. You're, no one knows. You're, you have to try, try it out and experiment. But the, the challenge is that people just can't sometimes um, respond well to bioidentical. They might be having antibodies or having an immune attack against their own thyroid medications, which can happen. Or maybe the fillers that are in them. So... This is really tricky, but this can happen. And this is why thyroid medication doesn't always work very well. It doesn't create massive changes in your symptoms or any at all sometimes. Tyrosin is a fillerless gel capsule 
that has T4, but it's well absorbed. My mom takes it. That is the one I usually like to recommend to people if I could prescribe that is. I would tell I would say that's one to consider, but um it's something for you to keep in mind because maybe you can advocate for that because it is quite easy to absorb and digest and assimilate, which is why uh, it's the best option I think out there if you have to take anything. So in quick summary here, when it comes to labs, thyrotoxicosis is when you have a TSH that is suppressed and you have an increased T4 and T3. Symptoms will be kind of obvious there, like I said before. Subclinical hypothyroidism is when you have a high TSH, but a normal T4. Hypothyroidism is a high TSH and low T4. Now, the other weird ones that you don't see very often are things where you might have a high TSH and a high T4. That's maybe a sign of a TSH-producing adenoma. And if you have a high T4 and a low TSH, that's indicative of hyperthyroidism. And then lastly, a low TSH and low T4 usually is suggesting challenges or disturbances in the pituitary gland or the hypothalamus, and that's secondary hypothyroidism. Okay, so wrapping up here, we're going to discuss thyroid issues and pregnancy. A lot of people I work with have the desire to become pregnant or become a mom, or they've tried and they've had miscarriages. And it's very, very devastating, and it's very difficult. Thankfully, I've been able to help a lot of people with this because we correct the thyroid issue and get their immune system to get under control. And that's the name of the game, right? P women are not incapable of getting pregnant, but the body doesn't care to have a baby and conceive when you're dealing with an autoimmune issue because it's unsafe. I think that makes sense. But that's something we forget about, I think. Your body only cares to have a pregnancy come to fruition when you are out of danger. Statistically speaking, thyroid dysfunction, hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism is estimated to affect somewhere between 4 to 6% of all pregnant women. So it might seem like a small number, but it's actually not. It's, a, it's, a, it's mi millions, really, uh, probably, of women who are dealing with thyroid issues and trying to get pregnant. You can have thyroid issues before pregnancy or thyroid issues that come after pregnancy, which I'll talk about. Medicine and doctors have made this really clear, and the research shows this, that you have to get your TSH under control. You have to get your thyroid at a pretty decent functioning status in order for you to have a successful pregnancy and not deal with complications. Again, this is why, like I said, you have to get TSH under control, because if you don't, it's a risk factor for a lot of problems. There is an increased demand on the maternal thyroid the mother's thyroid throughout gestation. Okay. So free T4 levels are typically high in the first trimester of pregnancy, and then they decrease over time. Whereas TSH, right, thyroid stimulating hormone, is typically suppressed in the first trimester and then later increases in pregnancy. This is why your doctor tests for these at various points throughout your pregnancy because you need to see where you stand. I should mention that people I've worked with who have Hashimoto's can still get pregnant. I've seen people be quite successful and have no issues. I've seen people have miscarriages. It's tough to say. 
what I tell people is you want to do your best to get your disease under control. doesn't mean you have to get it fully under control, but you have to get something moving in a, along in a way where it, it communicates to the body that, okay, we're not in bad shape. We're not in any threat. Because if you don't have, if you have, and there are many reasons why there could be thyroid issues going on. It's not just about insufficiency of thyroid hormone, because if you do, well, your, your doctor will give you thyroid replacement medication, which you need to take to support your pregnancy. Because if you don't, there's issues within the fetus. And again, even just within the uh, absorption or transportation of thyroid hormone and the oxidative stress that you might be dealing with, all these things can really disrupt or create problems. So we see that severe deficiency of, of thyroid hormone in the mother during pregnancy can create some really grave and serious issues uh, related to cognitive motor function, sensory deficits in the child, and even subtler forms of hypothyroidism that's going on can really create some changes in the brain structure of the child. And this is one of the ways in which neurodevelopmental issues can take place. So not to freak you out, but again, this is why it's really important to do what you have to do to get your thyroid in good standing. Subclinical hypothyroidism is often accompanied by increased concentrations of TPO antibodies. So the reason why you need to try to get them under control, if you have Hashimoto's, for example, is because antibodies can cross the placenta into the fetal environment, and this can impair fetal thyroid function and create a lot of other issues too. Other research has talked about how these antibodies and cytokines, these pro-inflammatory cytokines can cross the placenta and disrupt neurodevelopment. And again, neurodevelopment happens in the first few weeks of pregnancy. It's a very, very critical window of time. And I'll save this for another episode, but this is one of the reasons why people have kids with ADHD or autism. It's complicated. It's not due to one thing, but this is one of the risk factors for that. Okay. No one likes to hear that, but that's what science is telling us. So it's very, very critical for the mother to take care of her health. That's the point. Okay. And you're all doing the best you can. And that's really what it comes down to is that you're not, you're not bad. You're not wrong. You're not um, a failure. If you're not doing it right, you just, it's about taking action and doing the best you can do. There was a study I looked at recently that examined 47,000 pregnant women. And they showed that there was a threefold increased risk of preterm birth in women with subclinical hypothyroidism. Okay. Subclinical. Okay. That's how important it is. And in pregnant women who had hypothyroxinemia, which is really just saying normal TSH, low T4, there was a one and a half fold increased risk of preterm birth. And lastly, TPO antibodies, if they're present, are significantly associated with a higher risk of preterm birth as well. And something that I think will be of interest to you is the role of childhood maltreatment in pregnant women. Trauma. Okay, something I talk about a lot here on the show. But there's been studies looking at this and how women who have a history of trauma, they come into pregnancy and they show that there's changes in thyroid activity. And this can be a gateway to potentially having Hashimoto's 
in the postpartum period. So in one study, they looked at women who were pregnant and their history of childhood maltreatment, and they showed that women with moderate to severe abuse or neglect during childhood of their life had a four to seven times increased risk of demonstrating subclinical hypothyroidism across their pregnancy. So that's one outcome, but the reality is that unresolved trauma affects the whole body and mind for years, even before you get pregnant, that there could be deleterious effects on the embryo and everything going on during gestation. All right, so a couple more things here I want to share with you from the research around autoantibodies in pregnancy, because again, like I said, if you do what you can to manage your disease before pregnancy, that's great. It's the best you can do. But there are still risk factors, especially if you have a very severe, unrelenting disease and you've not done anything to manage it, then this is why we need to know these stats. So the presence of TPO antibodies is associated with a two to four increased risk of recurrent miscarriages, which is why I think this is happening for a lot of women, and preterm birth. Subclinical hypothyroidism in early pregnancy has been associated with the occurrence of preeclampsia even, which by the way, I was looking at research literally yesterday and they suggest that preeclampsia might actually be an autoimmune disease, which is really interesting. It might be an autoimmune related issue that happens during pregnancy, but it lifts and dissipates after pregnancy is over, which is really interesting. I'm not sure the significance of that. I think there's a lot of research that needs to happen still, but just food for thought. The presence of thyroid antibodies have been shown to increase unexplained subfertility, miscarriage, recurrent miscarriage, and preterm birth, and of course, postpartum thyroid disease. Okay, again, highlighting the need to get thyroid hormone, thyroid health under control. So how common is this? Well, according to the research, the prevalence of TPO antibodies in pregnant women is somewhere between 5 to 14%. And even thyroglobulin antibodies are seen somewhere between 3 to 18% of pregnant women. That's a pretty, it's a wide range, but it's a lot of women dealing with this. So this is why it's very critical to have, have this discussion. Now, lastly, postpartum thyroiditis, where a lot of women develop Hashimoto's after they're done with pregnancy. A lot of women will have remission during pregnancy because that's all part of the, the, the wisdom of the body. So let me discuss that. Pregnancy per se is an immunosuppressive state due to hormonal changes like progesterone. Uh, and that's why people feel better because progesterone's higher and that suppresses Treg cell, I'm sorry, suppresses cell-mediated um, T cells and B cells and increases T regulatory cells, which puts the brakes on the immune system. The body is obviously very smart. It says, okay, well, you have something growing in here, an embryo, we're not going to attack it. So antibodies will be low, mostly through, throughout pregnancy, and especially during the third trimester. But when it's over and done with, then people deal with these issues. And it's, it's actually quite common. And there's a lot we don't know as to why that happens. Um, something changes, of course, and obviously genetics are playing a role here, but it's because of the massive changes that take place in pregnancy, there might be some sort of boomerang effect that happens where the cellular immunosupp immunosuppressive effect of pregnancy is lifted 
right? And in the postpartum stage, there is this decrease in Treg cells and the reestablishment of immune responses, which can lead to thyroid autoimmunity. So, like I said before, some women experience thyrotoxicosis, where they initially have a state of hyperthyroidism in the beginning, and they think they have Graves, but then that fades away and they dip into hypothyroidism or Hashimoto's. So that's very, very common to see. And people think they have both. Like you don't have both. You might be fluctuating because your body's trying to figure itself out, but eventually the end result is Hashimoto's or hypothyroidism. Studies show that the increase of TPO antibody concentrations can occur as soon as six weeks after you deliver your baby. And that might even be stretched out to maybe 20 weeks. So somewhere between six and 20 weeks after delivery is when you could develop potentially Hashimoto's. So if you measure TPO antibodies during pregnancy, that may predict the risk of postpartum thyroiditis. The research shows that the incidence of having postpartum thyroiditis like this is maybe around 5%. And somewhere between 20 to 40% of those people with postpartum thyroiditis actually develop permanent hypothyroidism. Okay, but again, like I said, you can also have Hashimoto's and not have hypothyroidism. These are just fun facts to know and tell, maybe. But that's all I got for you today. That's a lot of information. I hope that was informative and helpful, and you took something away from that. But it's Thyroid Awareness Month, and I wanted to give you all the information I could <laughs> gather today for this episode. So I hope you learned something new here, and if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email, justin at the autoimmune revolution. You can find me on Instagram and send me a DM. I would love to hear your thoughts. And if you want to be kind enough to leave me a review on iTunes, I would love that too. All right. Thank you so much for being here with me. Be safe. Have a healthy and happy first month of the year, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Peace and love.